welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 20, Dungeons & Dragons, Original Version. Yeah, okay, so I know when I promised this week's episode last week, I said we'd be covering D&D 1st Edition. However, as I was working on the episode and chatting with folks on Twitter and other social media sites... I realized that first edition meant different things to different people. My intention when I announced the episode was always to cover the original D&D game, the three pamphlets in the box that was released in 1974. But for some folks, when I said first edition, they thought I meant when AD&D and D&D were split off later in the 70s. Since that's not what I meant, I changed the title for this week's episode. Now, all of that being said, I will be exploring AD&D and D&D in future episodes, just like what I'm doing today. So, let's do a deep dive into the original version of Dungeons & Dragons, and let's begin with some history. Now, I know we've discussed the original version multiple times during the podcast to this point, but I feel like I'd be missing something if we didn't at the very least cover its basic history before we break down how it plays versus the current edition. As we know, Dungeons & Dragons was released to the gaming market in 1974. The original version has a very interesting subtitle on its box label. Rules for Fantastic Medieval War Games Campaigns Playable with Paper and Pencil and Miniature Figures. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad they dropped that subtitle pretty quickly, too. I mean, D&D just tends to flow off the tongue. The first set was, as I mentioned just a minute ago, three pamphlets inside a brown wood grain box. There were also six reference sheets of tables and charts included in the set. Volume 1 was 36 pages. It was titled Men and Magic. Volume 2 was 40 pages, titled Monsters and Treasure. Volume 3 was 36 pages, titled The Underworld and Wilderness Adventures. I've mentioned before that it was also assumed that anyone playing this game would also have played Chainmail, which was Gary Gygax's miniatures war game, and many of the rules of this game assume you had a copy of those rules lying around. It was also assumed that players would own a copy of Outdoor Survival, which was a miniatures game published by Avalon Hill, and it was assumed that players would consult those rules for running encounters and exploration outside of a dungeon. Now, why would the creators of a game expect you to use the rules from other games in the game they were creating? Well, in the case of Chainmail, since Gygax was a co-creator, it makes some sense. After all, as we've discussed in multiple episodes, Chainmail was Gary's first foray into what would eventually become D&D. So knowing that game kind of sort of makes sense. But utilizing a set of rules for a completely different system published by a completely different company? How the hell is that supposed to work? Well, I mentioned this in last week's episode, but I think it bears repeating here. Early on, D&D was seen as more of an alternative to straight-up miniatures wargaming than it was its own completely separate genre. So pretty much everybody involved with D&D at the very beginning was a miniature wargamer, or at the very least had a basic understanding of it. So to have a copy of Outdoor Survival on hand, that kind of made sense. Now, why would they expect you to actually use it rather than just create rules of their own? 
I think that actually comes down more to the expectations of Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. See, their respective home campaigns were, much as the title would indicate, adventures run inside dungeons or sewers or other types of indoor locations. In fact, I've read numerous articles over the years where various gamers who were close to Gary Gygax have said that Gary's focus in the beginning was the dungeon itself. He didn't really care how you got there, or even about having those types of overland adventures. So to not really spend a lot of time on the rules concerning it, that made sense in the beginning. And I should note that money would have played into this as well. Gygax and Arneson had about $2,000 to produce the first thousand copies of D&D. That meant every printed page was extremely valuable, and they needed to make sure that they were getting the most bang for their buck. So if outdoor adventuring wasn't going to be a key focus, then fobbing that off on another set of rules would certainly make sense. Another thing to remember about the original game is that the artwork in the first printings was really, really bad. Or if we'd like to be a little more generous about it, really, really amateurish. There's an entire book dedicated to the art of Dungeons and Dragons. Titled Dungeons and Dragons Art and Arcana, Michael Whitwer, Kyle Newman, and Sam Whitwer reprint some of the art from that box, and they note that Gary Gygax utilized pretty much anybody he thought could hold a pencil to draw artwork for the set. I mentioned back in the TSR episode that Greg Bell, who provided some of the illustrations for this edition, has been accused over the years of copying other art for his drawings. The authors of Art and Arcana are a bit kinder, stating and said that he was inspired by other pictures. Now, we know from earlier episodes that the first thousand copies of the game sold out pretty quickly, then the next thousand did the same. By 1976, printings of this version of the game had a new box, which was solid white instead of the wood grain of earlier printings. It should also be noted that some of these later printings swapped out illustrations, with newer, better drawings substituted for the more basic art of the earlier printings. Reviews of this version of the game were really good. Tim Waddell reviewed it in Space Gamer No. 2 and said, quote, The most stimulating part of the game is the fact that anything can happen. Nothing is impossible. In that same issue, Andy Poudois offered his own review, noting that, quote, As a game, D&D is a fantastical outlet for the imagination. It has the quality of being infinitely flexible, and with it comes the reality of impossibility, end quote. He noted, though, that, quote, There are drawbacks to the game, as there are in any game. D&D cannot even begin to get interesting in less than 20 hours playing time. Hundreds of hours of work must be done ahead of time by the referee, and it takes a fairly long time to prepare on the part of the players. End quote. This set is an H.G. Wells Award winner, and also earned Gary Gygax the Strategists Club's Award for Outstanding Designer and Writer. Additionally, it got Origins Awards for All-Time Best Role-Playing Rules and Greatest Contribution to the Hobby in 1977. Origins put it in its Hall of Fame in 1977. Games Magazine did the same thing in 1984, and Pen and Paper made it a Hall of Famer in 2002. And let's be honest, whether you dig these rules or not, without them, it's pretty safe to say we probably wouldn't have a role-playing industry today. Or, at the very least, it wouldn't look anything like it does right now.
Okay, so with history out of the way, let's dive into the rules of the original edition of D&D and see how much has changed since 1974. As we do this, I do need to give a shout out to GeekDad.com because I have it across an article on their site while I was researching, and the Geek Dad did some comparisons that are going to be pretty close to, if not damn near the same, as what I'm going to do here. He did them first, so I feel the need to give him credit for his work, and I'm going to suggest you check that out on his site, especially since he included pictures of some of this stuff, which I can't do for the obvious reasons. I also have to admit that this is the first time in 20 episodes of this podcast that I've actually had to make a purchase in order to provide the information we need. Normally, if I research long enough and go far enough down the rabbit hole that is the internet, I can find the information I need to produce the episode. Well, <laughs> this time I needed to pick up a PDF copy of those original rules for D&D. And believe me, the 10 bucks for that PDF was a way better deal than 20 grand for a vintage box, especially considering I don't have the 20 grand, so there's that. So I actually sat down and went page by page through all the PDFs for these books. And I'm going to discuss a lot of the things that are printed inside. Most of these differences are going to be painfully obvious, but some of them are a little more subtle. And I'll reference D&D 5th edition along the line, probably in both cases, just to help explain. Okay, so with the basic out of the way, let's get into the first book, which is Men and Magic. Since that was intended to be the very first book the aspiring D&D player was going to read. And I got to say, when I got to page five in this book, I, I damn near spit out my soda. On this page, there's a list of the recommended equipment. First off, let's, let's look at the dice it recommends. Uh, a pair of four-sided dice, a pair of eight-sided dice, four to 20 pairs of six-sided dice, one pair of 20-sided dice, one pair 12-sided dice. Okay, well, the first thing you might notice there is that they've got you getting at least one pair of each of the necessary dice, with that six-sider being the exception. Truth be told, I would still recommend a gamer to have multiples of each of the die types, just because there will be times you're going to need more than one of a certain die at a certain time. The second thing to notice here, and I think it's a pretty big thing, is that there's no mention of ten-sided dice. Is it that they didn't exist yet, or is it... And I'm going to say this is probably more likely. Did Gary and Dave not think they were necessary? I'm going to leave that one there. All right, so what's next on the equipment list? Uh, a copy of Chainmail. It's actually on the equipment list for the game. We already discussed that, so we're just going to leave it sit there. Here's some more gear. A three-ring notebook for the referee and for each player. Graph paper, sheet protectors, and they suggest the heaviest possible. Three ring lined paper, drafting equipment and colored pencils, scratch paper and pencils, imagination, one patient referee, that yes, that's their words, and players. Oh, and this page also suggests the number of players. It suggests at least one referee and from four to 50 players. However, the rules do helpfully suggest that the referee to player ratio should be about one to 20. 20 players for one DM. All right, I have to stop and talk about this for a minute. I mean, I, I run a D&D game right now. In fact, as this podcast drops, we're gaming tomorrow night. I've got six players. 
Listen, running a game for a group that size is a pain in the ass to do. But don't get me wrong. I love doing it. I'm going to continue to do it for as long as everybody wants to play. Hell, if my wife decides she wants to get back in, that's seven players, and and I'll, I'll do that. The pain in the ass about it is you either have to take challenge ratings, which is not an original version thing, but a fifth edition thing, and you've either got to chuck that out the window or you modify them to the point that you're always concerned that something that would be easy for one or two players could damn near kill somebody else in that group. For me, multiplying all of that by three, check please. No, I'm going to hand that off to somebody else if I ever get to that point. Trust me. Now, in fairness, when Gygax ran for exceptionally large groups, he would tend to have one or two folks who'd be assisting him. They'd run some of the monsters through combat and assist with other tasks as needed. I've also spoken to a number of old school gamers over the years who've reported that this was also the case at a number of conventions they gamed at. There would be a DM, but that DM would have a couple of assistants who would, at times, break the larger group into smaller groups and assist the DM in running them through what needed to be done. So there's a pretty big change from 1974 to today. Now the books strongly recommend three to five players, though they do admit you can have as many as you want. Okay, so back to this book. The very next paragraph is titled Preparation for the Campaign. And I'm just going to read the paragraph to you because it gives you an idea of what Gygax and Arneson were thinking when they created this game. The referee bears the entire burden here. But if care and thought are used, the reward will more than repay him. First, the referee must draw out a minimum of half a dozen maps of the levels of his underworld, people them with monsters of various horrid aspect, distribute treasures accordingly, and note the location of the latter two on keys, each corresponding to the appropriate level. This operation will be more fully described in the third book of these rules. When this task is completed, the participants can then be allowed to make their first descent into the dungeons beneath the huge ruined pile, a castle built by generations of made wizards and insane geniuses. Okay, I have to admit, all of the flowery language aside, the role of the GM really hasn't changed much in the last 47 years. What's different more often than not is that the GM is doing less map drawing and creating and more detail writing about the situation or the scenario the group is going to be involved in. But again, you have to take into account the backgrounds of most of the players at this time. They came from a game style that required a lot of work. So why was this going to be any different? All right, next up, classes. So if you've played any edition of D&D after this one, you're accustomed to having a decent selection of classes for your character to play. I can assure you that was not the case in 1974. The original game had precisely three. Fighting men, magic users, and clerics. Pretty simple why this was the case. In most medieval fantasy published prior to this game, these were the three basic character types. One could argue there were the thief rogue types as well, but for whatever reason, that class didn't make the cut at that time. When it came to races, you could, in theory, play anything you wanted to. However, the rules made it pretty clear that any race you played, other than a, a man, human, would place limits on how high of a level you could become in your chosen class. Plus, this edition limited what class you could play if you weren't human. Clerics were only allowed to be human, and magic users were only men and elves. So if you were a dwarf, you were a fighting man. No arguments allowed. 
Now, there were certain advantages for a dwarf or an elf or a halfling, but I'm not so sure those advantages were worth only being able to advance to level six or eight of a chosen class. In fact, many of those advantages, such as the dwarven stone cutting ability, they didn't call it that in this edition. It was like a two-sentence explanation of everything a dwarf could discover. It, it still exists in today's game, but again, I don't know that those benefits outweighed the lack of class advancement. Anyway, let's move on to the alignment discussion. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about alignment, basically because I don't use it in my D&D game. I know there are some of you that just called that blasphemy, but I call it pitching a bullshit rule that doesn't work for me. And for the record, I did a YouTube video touching on bullshit rules and pitching them a couple of weeks ago. In the initial version of this game, there are exactly three alignments, law, neutrality, and chaos. And the book has a handy-dandy chart to let you know which races and classes typically fall into each. I really don't think there's a need to explain the three alignments, because I think they pretty much speak for themselves. And I'm not going to go any deeper into the alignment discussion right now, because like I just said, and I think you figured out, I think it's a complete waste of time. So let's let's move on. I think it's time to roll your ability scores. <laughs> Sorry. I think it's probably better to say that it's time to have your ability scores rolled because in the original version of the game, the DM rolled your ability scores for you. Yeah, you heard me right. You didn't have control over the roles for the creation of your character. Oh, it gets better. While a great many gamers utilize the roll 46, drop the lowest, and add the rest model for ability score generation these days, this version did not. It was as old school as old school gets. Roll 3d6, add them up. Now, that is a score generation method guaranteed to give you some low scores. But in the minds of many, it's also a more realistic method, as characters with a bunch of 14 and 15 scores is probably not very realistic. I mean, let's face it, we've probably in reality met a whole lot more people with a 6 intelligence than we have with an 18 intelligence. Okay, gonna leave it right there. Now, the rest of this book gets into the various levels of the classes, as well as equipment and description of spells. Yeah, there's some difference between what's written here and what we have today, but we still have two more books to check out, and I'm about 3,000 words into this, so we're going to be running a little long today. So let's jump on to book number two of the set. That's Monsters and Treasure, and it describes, wait for it, Monsters and Treasure. Pages three and four of this book have a handy chart in them with a list of all the monsters in the game, which should be your first clue that this is a way different version than the modern game since you couldn't put all the monsters in the 5th edition monster manual onto pamphlet-sized pages unless you made it so small. Hell, even then, I don't think you could do it. Anyway, these charts also included the armor class, the movement, the hit dice, and a reference to the treasure table to determine the loot they might have. One of the first things I noticed on the charts was how many of some of these might show up. I mean, the chart suggests that if you're fighting men, humans, between 30 and 300 should appear. Orcs, 30 to 300. Goblins, 40 to 400. Wraiths, 2 to 16. <laughs> Look, maybe your game works well with 300 humans in a fight against your party, but I'm pretty sure mine would turn into a slog if I did that. Same with 400 goblins. And 16 wraiths? That would be like literal murder on a whole lot of parties. 
But you again have to understand the mindset these rules were coming from. In miniature war games, players frequently find themselves in situations with odds of 50 to 1 or worse. So to be in a situation like that in a role-playing game was, to the creators at the time, no big deal. Also, you need to understand that the concept of losing pieces, that would be your miniature war game philosophy, the concept of losing pieces, no big deal. So you apply that to the role-playing game. Okay, you lost your character. Okay, we go back to the drawing board. We create another one. Nowadays, there are players that would literally get violent if you killed your player. Nowadays, if you tried to pull that 300 orcs on your group, yeah, your group would probably get up and smack the shit out of you for trying it. Difference in philosophy, difference in generation, difference in games. Anyway, armor class is the next entry, and this is where I have to note they're all going to be below 10. In the current version of D&D, that would be a good thing. However, from the time D&D was created in 1974 until 3rd edition was released in 2000, armor class worked differently. The lower your armor class, the harder you were to hit. In fact, down the line when we talk about AD&D, we'll talk about the concept of Thacko but I'm just going to leave that sitting here for now. Needless to say, for the first 26 years of the game, a low armor class was a good thing. Another thing I wanted to note from this sheet is that movement for monsters is listed in inches, which won't last for long. Now, all movement is done in feet, with the thought being that one square on a map is typically five feet. The descriptions of the various monsters, while extensive for the time, look scant by today's standards. The book fits, in some cases, five or six monster descriptions on a single page. Nowadays, two monsters at most are on a page in the monster manual, and some monster descriptions take multiple pages. Insofar as the treasure tables and treasures themselves, there's not a whole lot there that's overly different from today. Maybe a couple of adjustments in wording and obviously game mechanics because of the change, but really it's kind of same-same. One thing I did note and decided to point out here rather than someone else is the concept of weapons that have a plus to attack in general with another plus to attack versus a certain creature, such as a lycanthrope or a giant. There was a time that that was a big deal in D&D, but it went away about the same time 3rd edition came around. I know there are other DMs out there who liked that old rule and have figured out how to shoehorn it into 5th edition rules, and I myself have started experimenting with it in my own game. So let's move on to the third and final book in this set, The Underworld and Wilderness Adventures. The first six or seven pages of this particular book are devoted to demonstrating how to build a dungeon for your players to work through. It's got several maps for the reader to check out, along with charts for wandering monsters and the placement of treasure. On page 8, yes, I'm still giving you page numbers. If you decide to purchase the PDF for yourself, I want you to know where I found all this shit. Anyway, on page 8, they give a very interesting description of what a move and a turn are, and I'm just going to read it straight from the book. Movement is in segments of approximately 10 minutes. Thus, it takes 10 minutes to move about two moves, 120 feet for a fully armored character. Two moves constitute a turn, except in flight pursuit situations, where the move's turn will be doubled, and no mapping allowed. 
Time must be taken to rest, so one turn every hour must be spent motionless, and double the rest period must be taken after a flight pursuit takes place. Melee is fast and furious. There are ten rounds of combat per turn. All right, there's, there's a lot more to this section, but those were the parts I wanted to drill down on. So if I'm reading this correctly, the rules for this edition say that a round is about 10 minutes and you can get two moves in a round. Now I may be wrong on that, and if I am, hit me up and correct me, but for this moment in time, that's how I'm interpreting this. Now nowadays we know, because the writers for editions 3, 4, and 5 made it really clear, a round's about six seconds long, and you can have a full attack action, a move in an attack, or double movement. That's it. That's, that's what you can do during a round. I also love the fact that rest is ordered for about 10 minutes every hour. Now, I know players who basically want to do that anyway. They want to take a long rest after nearly every combat so that everybody regains full hit points and spells. But that's not really what the point of all that is. Oh, and if you've got a group that wants to do that, you can break them of that by dropping random encounters on them a few times. After that, they're going to want to move on to the next thing and find a definite safe place before they try to rest. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Bob's your uncle. The rest of the book goes through various types of adventuring, such as wilderness, swamp, on water, in the air, etc. It also discusses the various types of combat. Now, what's funny is that in none of these three books do I find anything about the rules for combat. The reason for that? Those rules are in chainmail. Now, there is one more rule I wanted to hit on that's in this book, and it's the rule on healing. All right, I've been reading from the book. Let me just read from it one more time. On the first day of complete rest, no hit points will be regained. But every day thereafter, one hit point will be regained until the character is completely healed. This can take a long time. Yeah, no shit. It was this rule on healing that I think led a lot of DMs giving away healing potions and scrolls like Halloween candy. I mean, look, this all changed in 3rd edition, and it's been modified for 5th edition. I don't know if I really like the 5e rule, but I don't dislike it enough to pull it from my game. But yeah, I mean, you literally at that time, if you wanted, unless you had a cleric in your party or access to a cleric who could heal you, yeah, if you lost 5 or 6 hit points, you were resting for 5 or 6 days to get back to full healing. Yikes. All right, I'm going to leave that there. That, that, that's it. That's the three books that comprise the original version of Dungeons & Dragons. 47 years later, we can certainly see what the appeal of the game was, but we can also see why other designers felt the need to make changes to it over the years. And with that, we come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we're going to take a look at comics. Not stand-up comics, but comic strips with a gaming flavor to them. From Knights of the Dinner Table to Nodwick to Dork Tower, we're checking out the funnies that keep us laughing even if it's at ourselves. As we wrap up this week's episode, I need to send out a thank you to Wizards of the Coast. Even though I paid for the copy of the original rules I used in today's episode, it never hurts to send a shout out to the company that owns the rights. I also want to give one more credit to GeekDad.com since they did an article about this edition of the game a while back, and since I came across it while researching today's episode, I felt it only fair to give them credit for the hard work they put in as well. I also need to give credit to the folks at Pixabay.com. That's where we get that theme music we use when we bring this show in and we take this show out. So if you're looking for some license-free music, Pixabay.com. 
My friends at For The Loot Gaming on Twitch keep cranking out game sessions, so if you're into watching some live video gaming, give them a watch. But of course, you get the shout-out of shout-outs. You're the reason I do this every week, especially since with the new job, my grandson, and all the other responsibilities I have, I, I don't really have a lot of spare time anymore. But I love doing all of this for you, and let's face it, it's an ego boost for me. So as long as you keep listening, I'm going to keep producing episodes. As always, you can follow us on Facebook, Role Playing History Podcast. Hit us up on Twitter, at Role Playing P. YouTube, we've got a channel, Role Playing History Podcast. Click on the subscribe button and hit the bell to receive notices when we drop new stuff. If you are an emailer, hey, email me. It's roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. So, next week, we're going to get funny with it by taking a look at role-playing game-themed comics. But, that's next week. And until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.